Hello and welcome to this message from the room. We hope that this message from Pastor Billy Pate inspires and challenges you towards a greater relationship with Jesus Christ. Now let's join Pastor Billy Pate for another exciting message. You say come to the Today I'm going to conclude our series on the power of His resurrection and I hope that this series has challenged you. I hope it's brought a new understanding uh, and an importance to our journey with God and uh, where God is wanting to take us. And so we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 12 and I'm going to close out from there. I could preach, I could continue to preach a, a number of sermons and a number of messages on Elisha and correlating his miracles uh, as a picture of death to life, limitation into fullness... Uh, and I would encourage you to read those, uh, those, those miracles throughout 2 Kings with that in mind and just let God speak to you concerning. But today I'm going to take you to the New Testament to see what Paul says about some of those things that keep us from God's promise. Today we get a chance to look at an Old Testament story through New Testament eyes and that's always a privilege for us. And so this morning help me pray as I preach, kept out of Canaan. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for your grace. Lord, I ask that you would just be with us in this house today, Lord, that we would not only be hearers of your word, but God, we would respond to your word. We would respond to your spirit. We would would transform our lives, God, by your grace and by your mercy and by your power. That we submit ourselves into the hands of, of, of the master who is crafting us to be all that you have designed us to be. Lord, I know that, God, we are in a place where you're trying to take us into a new place with you. You're trying to take us into a new level, God and I don't want anything hindering me. I know that this church doesn't want anything hindering uh, us from going into the place that you have designed and created for us, Father. So today, we go together into that place. We acknowledge where we fail, we acknowledge where we struggle, and we trust that your, your hand of redemption and restoration is upon us to fix that problem and take us into the place that you have made for us. We love you today, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. I'm going to preach another message sometime about that rock being Christ. But today, I want you to look and note that in verses 1 through 4, what he tells us here is all the similarities of the children of Israel. He really puts them in a place where they understand, or we understand as the reader, that they had the same experiences. They went through the same situation. They dealt with the same many of the same situations. They saw God move in the same ways but yet many of them missed the promise we'll see in verse 5. The journey of the children of Israel is like our journey today. The Egyptian bondage that they were in was a life of sin in our, in our reference, from our reference point our context. God took us out of a life of sin, just like He took the children of Israel out of a life of Egyptian bondage, and He took them into the desert. Walking through the desert is that journey through life. As we're trying to really understand what God wants for us, what God desires for us, how God is shaping and making us into what He wants us to be. And as we go through that journey, we're walking with Christ from death to life, from limitation to fullness, the journey to walk away from our old life into the one that Jesus has promised us. 
The promised land, just like for the children of Israel, represents God's intentions for us. His fullness realized. His promises received. So when you look at their journey, their journey is our journey. For the most part, like I said, all of them had the same experiences. They saw the same miracles. They were on the same journey together. For for the most part, they experienced the same kinds of challenges and the same kinds of difficulties. I would say for us, it's basically the same. For the most part, we experience basically the same kinds of things. We experience the same kinds of experiences, the same kinds of opportunities. We deal with the same kinds of challenges and difficulties, of course. There are variations. Of course, there is a uniqueness to all of us. And even what we face is different, but the fact is we have more in common than we have in differences. The enemy always wants to make us believe that we are unique from everybody else around us. That I struggle with this, but nobody else struggles with that. That I'm in this situation facing this problem, but nobody else faces this situation or this problem. And that is a lie. The fact is we all are really basically similar. And we all have the basic same struggles and same difficulties. Oh, they might manifest themselves in unique ways, but the fact is the issues are the issues. And the issue is sin. And we've got to deal with that. We've got to deal with whatever is in before us that is keeping us from what God has promised us. 1 Corinthians 10.5 says, But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now that's a sad story. That's a terrible story. How can, when you look at the story of the Old Testament, you you see that, that the Lord led them by a cloud in the day. It was a miracle that He led them by a cloud. At night, He led them by fire. There was a rock that was Christ that followed them around. How miraculous is that? And yet they still, in spite of all of those miracles, the parting of the Red Sea, the manna that was left on the ground, all the things that God did defeating the enemies, they still, many of them, never fully accepted what He was trying to do in their lives. And they fell in the wilderness and their bodies were scattered, the Word of God tells us. He says most of them, with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. The majority stayed stuck in the wilderness. They died in the wilderness and they never reached Canaan. Can I propose to you today that many of us, even though we are without a doubt meant to live in God's promise, never reach it. That the fact is many of us start on a journey from sin and we get out of sin but we never get past the wilderness. Like the children of Israel, some make it but the majority do not. And I'm not suggesting what I today that we're not going to make it to heaven. I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm saying that many of us, even though we've had a salvation experience, we get stuck just past that salvation experience and never walk into what God truly has for our lives. We don't really fully grasp His purpose, His plan, His intentions for us. We never fully understand His promises and receive those promises. And quite frankly, we just stay stuck in a wilderness that God never intended us to live in and we stay stuck there and we never step into the full full promise of God. So what is it then that keeps us stuck? What is it 
that causes us to remain in the wilderness of life rather than to walk in the promise of God? I think there is a number of things that can be the answer to that question. But what I'm going to deal with today is some things that Paul specifically addresses that keeps us from the promise. Fortunately, Paul doesn't just tell us what happened in 1 Corinthians. He also tells us why it happened. Paul gives us five things that kept the children of Israel out of Canaan. And I strongly believe that these are the same five things that keep us out of Canaan as well. And if they are not dealt with, they will keep this church and us as individuals from taking hold of all that God has given us. And I want what God has in store for me. I know you want what God has in store for you. You're ready to go into that fullness. You're ready to walk into that promise. We've been preaching for the last several weeks about receiving what God has in store for us. Now let's take hold of it. Let's walk across that threshold and let's experience what God has intended for us to experience. Five things Paul tells us that will keep us out of Canaan. Let's look at verse 6. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Paul says the first thing that kept them out of Canaan was lust. When we hear the word lust, we automatically think in terms of sexual sin. That is not necessarily what lust means. It is not what the writer is referring to in this particular context. Lust in this context is satisfying self at the expense of God and others. It is a preoccupation with what the self wants. It elevates self above God and above others. Love is a is a love gives and lust only wants to get. Lust can show up in your marriage when you don't put your spouse above yourself. Lust can show up in your job when you cheat your boss out of time and don't give your best. Lust is notorious for operating in the church when our whole focus is one on what we can get out of church rather than what we can put into it. Lust When I am more interested in what I want than what God wants and what others need, I'm falling subject to lust. It kept the children of Israel out of the promised land and it will keep us out of the promised land as well. The children of Israel craved, listen to this, the children of Israel craved what they had in Egypt. They had a hunger for what they had in Egypt. They had a desire for what they had in Egypt. Even though their feet were taking them to Israel, their hearts kept going back to Egypt. Even though their their feet took them, was taking them to the promised land, was taking them through the wilderness, their hearts desired always what was back in Egypt. Every time they come against a difficulty or a challenge, the first thing that came out of their mouth was, oh, we had it good in Egypt. How many times have we as Christians, when we face difficulty, in our heart of hearts said, I would have been better off had I never committed to doing this for God. Their hearts kept going back to Egypt. Lust is an issue of the heart. And this is the real issue. For many of us, we have areas in our life where our feet may be taking us to places that reflect a desire to serve God. 
but our hearts are stuck craving what the world has to offer instead. It's when we come to church, but we only come to church because we're obligated to come. It's when we come to God's house and we only lift our hands and we only sing the songs because we're obligated to sing them or because someone might be looking, not because we have a true desire and a heart for the object of the worship for that song. I serve in Sunday school just because nobody else will do it, not because I have a heart to do it. I serve as an usher not because I want to do it and not because I desire to do it, just because... I just have to do it. Lust is about satisfying yourself at the expense of others. God calls all of us to be servants and to be sacrificial. And lust is contrary to both of these. Lust puts you first and everyone else second, including God. Selfishness must be crucified in all of us. I'm pointing the finger at myself, not just... Not just speaking to, the, to, to you as the, as the crowd today. It has to be crucified in all of us. Selflessness and sacrificial living has to be cultivated in all of us. Verse 7. He says, And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The second thing that kept the children of Israel out of Canaan was idolatry. The latter part of verse 7 is a reference to Exodus 32 when the Israelites made the golden calf and they worshipped it. Idolatry is this. It is a value system we create and in which we esteem something to be more worthy of our devotion than our devotion to God. We make something or someone the object of our affection, the object of our praise. In simple terms, idolatry is giving time, thought, and energy, and regard to something more than you do to God. Exodus 20 and 2 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. He says you're not to have anything anything or anyone above me. I am to be central to your life. So what is an idol in my life, pastor? I don't have any carved images. I don't have anything that I look at and I worship. I understand that. We don't do that in this culture today. But we have a lot of things that are idols to us. I'm going to show you one of the biggest idols that we have in our, in our lives today is this right here. This demands more time from us than anything else that we, we have in our lives for the most part. When we come and we say, Lord, I'm sorry, I didn't have time to read and study your word, but I have posted on Facebook 47 times in the last week. It may be because this is more important than him. And I'm not, again, I'm not pointing the finger at you. I'm just saying that's, that's my own life. I'm just preaching in my own world right now. 
And we could go through the list over and over again. There are a number of things that demand our time above God. And if we have things that we are more affectionate towards, people that we're more affectionate toward, then we do our own God. We have put other things and other, other people in the place that is rightfully His. Whatever demands the majority of our time, our energy, our thoughts, and our efforts is really our God. Paul told us everything we do, everything we do, we do is unto the Lord. We have to invest time in work. I understand that. And other areas of life, we don't have any choice but to do that. But you know we can do all of those things as unto Christ. We can do all those things as unto the Lord. We can always go into our workplaces that we have to give 40, 50, 60 hours a week, whatever it is. But we can do that as unto God. I go as an ambassador for Him. I go in the presence and the power of Jesus Christ. And every time I touch something or I work for someone or I have an interaction with someone, I do it as unto Jesus Christ. That's putting Him first. The problem with many of us is that we try to compartmentalize our our lives. We put God on Sundays. We put our work Monday through Fridays. We put our family on Saturdays. And we don't let Him invade every aspect of who we are. God is not a person or a thing to be put into a place. He is the basis for which all things spring from. And He is the central person to every part of it. He has to be number one. If he's not number one, if he's not central, then idolatry is in the way. Idolatry takes hold when we casually cross side in our everyday, though he is just a part of our lives and not central to our lives. And I just want to say this, that he is not just your Sunday thing. He is your everything or he is your nothing. He can't just be our Sunday thing, our Wednesday night thing. He has to be our everything or He is nothing. When hobbies start pulling me away from my devotion to God, I am more devoted to them than I am Him. When I start missing church and start neglecting prayer and study of God's Word for other things, those things have become my God. And that is idolatry. And that is what kept the children, one of the things that kept the children of Israel out of the promised land. And it is one of the things that will keep us from the fullness of God too. Verse 8. Are you all right? Okay. I'm with you too. I'm in the boat with you. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. The third thing that kept them out of Canaan was sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is any kind of sexual sin. To define it in more clear terms, sexual immorality is anything sexual in nature outside the canopy of marriage as defined biblically. I'm going to say it again. Sexual immorality is anything sexual in nature outside of the canopy of marriage as defined biblically. The biblical definition of marriage. Sexual immorality, or the Bible refers to it as fornication, is popular and sexual promiscuity is acceptable everywhere today in our society except the Bible. I'm going to give you some stats just to drive the point home. So this is not me preaching now, so you can't be mad at me. But I think this is alarming. And, I, and it's no wonder why the church is stuck 
and the churches in America are not moving forward when you see these stats. 50% of Christian men, 20% of Christian women are addicted to pornography. 50% of Christian men and 20% of Christian women are addicted to pornography. Among born-again Christians, 49% believe sexual thoughts and fantasies are morally acceptable. 28% consider pornography morally acceptable. 35% believe sex outside of marriage is morally acceptable. 37% of pastors, pastors admit that pornography is a current struggle and 51% say it is a constant source of temptation. The largest and fastest growing group of consumers of internet pornography are 12 to 17 years old, year olds. And the, listen to this, the average age of exposure to pornography is 11. Statistics show an astronomical growth in sexual permissiveness since the sexual revolution of 1960s. Here's couples living together outside of marriage in 1960 was 439,000. In 1980, 1 million 589,000. In 2000, 5.5 million. And now 15 years later, there is an estimated 10 million couples living together outside of marriage. The Bible says it's wrong. Sex before marriage outside the context of marriage has increased 25,000% since 1960. The world may say it is okay that it is acceptable, but the Word of God does not agree with that. And we want, listen, we never want to be a church that is, a, that is pushing people away. But we don't want to be a church either that allows people to come in in their sin and in their struggle and stay in that sin and struggle and never know the truth. I refuse, I refuse as your pastor to stand before God one day to stand before God one day and have a couple that went to church with me that I was supposed to preach the truth to and them to look at me and say, we're not making heaven today because you didn't tell us the truth. I am not going to be that guy. We've got to get it under the blood. You've got to get it right. Nobody's mad at you. Nobody's aggravated at you. Matter of fact, we love you. And that's the reason I love you. And that's why I'm telling you. I want to go somewhere. And I want to go somewhere with you. I want God to take us to a place that He means for us to go. And I don't want any of us left behind. And so I'm telling you what the Word tells you today so that we can all go together. It's no wonder that the church is in the shambles that it's in when the, when the climate outside of the church is the same as the climate inside the church. Sexual immorality is keeping the church powerless to possess God's promise. And if we want what God has promised, then we have to address the issue. Marriages are destroyed because of it. Churches are kept powerless because of it. We don't want this to hinder us in becoming what God said we could be. I'm going to move on just for time's sake this morning. Verse 9, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. The fourth thing that kept them out of Canaan was tempting Christ. Tempting Christ is this. It is demanding that God do what is contrary to His will or inconsistent with His character. Lying and cheating in business and praying God bless and prosper that business is tempting Christ. 
is asking God to bless your relationship when you are engaged in sexual immorality. It is saying, God, your principles, I don't want them, I just want your blessing. I don't want your ways, I just want the benefits of your ways. That's tempting Christ. It is desiring to live in two contrary worlds, not fully embracing a sinful life, but not fully embracing God's word. It is keeping one foot in the world and trying to keep one foot in the kingdom of God. And this is what Paul is dealing with even in the Corinthian church when he writes the letter. They are claiming Christ as their Savior, but they're living like the world. How can we expect God to bless us when we are not fully committed to Him? Tempting Christ is really saying, God, you don't have all the salvation. You don't have all the resources. You don't have all the means by which to bless me. Some of it I have to do myself. And that is what we're saying. But Jesus is complete today. He has won the total victory. He lacks nothing and He gives us what we need and provides for us if we will live by His principles and live by His ways. We have to trust that His ways produce life. It may not produce it instantly like cheating will, but it will produce it and it will keep it. It will sustain you in, in, the, in the right ways, in God's ways. Christian people that own businesses, that operate their businesses by Christian principles may start out slow, but over time, God blesses them, God sends it to them, and God keeps them. When everything else is falling apart, God will send them business, God will bless them, and God will carry them through. And even if He doesn't, He will bring them to a point where they get to start a new business or a new way of provision. God is not going to abandon you. God will take care of you. And you've got to trust that. Circumventing the process, trying to find shortcuts to the places that you're trying to go is not the answer. God's ways are the best ways. Tempting Christ says, I know a better way. And I'm intent on getting to that place my way. Verse 10. Nor complain, O Lord. As some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. The last thing Paul addresses that kept them out of Canaan is complaining. Complaining. In its simplest form, complaining is negative confession. Complaining, criticizing, fault finding, spreading rumors, all of these are negative confession. They are speaking against a person, a place, or a thing. All of us, I don't think there's a person in the room that, if they're honest, can say that they don't struggle with complaining. It's just too easy to do. And we are so ingrained with an entitlement mentality that we think we have the right to complain if things don't go our way. But the fact is, God said this is one of the things that kept them out of the promised land is that they were complainers, they were murmurers, they were constantly bellyaching and groaning because things weren't going exactly like they played. They ignored the miracles, they ignored the good things that were taking place, they spent all of their time focused on what they didn't like and what they weren't comfortable with instead of focusing on the one who was working miracle after miracle after miracle in their life. If we would stop and consider all that God is doing for us and in us and through us and forget about all the things that are not going the way we think they ought to go, we would have more to to praise God about than we could ever do in this lifetime. God has blessed every one of us and we have a whole lot more things going for us than we have going against us. 
And so when we fall into that, we just fall into this negative confession where we're just cursing the very work that God's trying to do in our life. We're cursing our family. We're cursing our marriage. We're cursing our job. We're cursing our church. And we're speaking negative, negativity into the scene. James 3 and 6 says this, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. Can I just stop there and just say, just like the tongue defiles the whole body here, one mouth can defile the whole church body as well? I'll preach that some other time. It says, and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by what? By hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men. We have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. And then he says, my brethren, these things ought not be. You know, that really ought not be the way it goes. That out of the same mouth I bless on one hand and on the same mouth on the other turn I'm cursing the very thing. God bless my marriage. My wife's an idiot. I'm just using that example. That's not me talking. You know what I'm saying, though, and it's the truth. Uh, thank God, Lord, you've given me provision for this week. I hate my boss. I hate my job. Right? We've got to speak life into those situations. Proverbs 20, 18 and 21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Listen, you're going to eat its fruits. You're either going to eat the fruits of death that you've spoken or you're going to eat the fruits of life that you've spoken. But you're going to eat those fruits one way or another. Complaining about your boss, your spouse, your kids, your church provide, produces a negative effect in your relationship to them all. And if I can't, and I used I, you like that? If I can't say something positive or constructive, then I need to keep my mouth shut. Wow. 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 I'm going to ask Amber if she would come to the piano this morning. I'm just going to have to wrap it up on that note. Listen, these five things kept the children of Israel from the promised land, and I believe they're keeping the church today from the promised land as well. They will keep you from the promised land. They will keep me from the promised land. There are other things, but these things I think are huge issues facing the Israelites then and they're facing the church now. Sin bears consequences and it bears an effect on your life. And I think the effect that it bears is a limitation. It is the being stuck in the wilderness when the destination is the promised land. The effect of sin is oftentimes more sinister than the consequences because it is much more subtle. It just makes us fruitless. It makes us barren. It makes us die in the wilderness and often without even really understanding why. Verse 11 goes on to say in verse 12, Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our 
admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Take heed this morning. Heed the Word of God today. Because I think that a lot of us have gotten into a place, and certainly the case in cross, across churches in America, there's a lot of people that are under the impression that they're okay when in reality they're not okay. They've been lulled to a false sense of security and they really have not acknowledged the sin problem in their lives that is keeping them from God. I don't want that to be our case. I don't want that to be our situation today. So I challenge you this morning to take heed lest you fall. We hope you have enjoyed and been encouraged by this message. We'd love for you to join us at the river on Sunday mornings at 9.45 for Sunday school and at 10.30 for morning worship. We also provide our midweek service for all ages on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. If you'd like to support the various ministries at the river, please go to our giving tab. We would love for you to visit us at 1110 South Preston Street, Burke Texas. And as always, we encourage you to come experience life with us at the river. Till I found myself face down on your shore. You say, come to the river.